Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside is located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. So our text this morning has this question before us. What will become of us? What will become of the human race? What will become of individuals? These are questions every culture in society seems to contemplate. doesn't matter where they are in the world. What's going to happen after this life? We ask it as naturally as we breathe. And it's interesting uh, because we have just come out of a series where we've talked a lot about the afterlife. Uh, And so this text in Mark is sort of a a good place to step back in to the book because we've been addressing eternity. Now, for some people, they just flat deny that there is something beyond this world. Some people just avoid the thought because it's just too overwhelming to think about. And some people fully take for granted uh, that they will have a blessed afterlife and, uh, and, and never consider what kind of relationship with God they have right now. And it doesn't matter what kind of relationship they have with God. They just fully assume that they're going to be fine in the afterlife. And a lot of people are there. And then, of course, there's reincarnation. There's different ideas regarding that, too. The Scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul says something. Where he combines a verse in Isaiah 64 and a verse in Isaiah 65, puts them together and says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So Isaiah 64 and 65 give you a sort of an incredible picture of eternity. I encourage you to read that one day this week. So the question becomes, if that's the truth, how can humans expect such a glorious future? I mean, what do we base a glorious future on? And I think the answer is in our text, and it is profound, and you might not notice it right at first. And of course, the one carrying the answer is Jesus himself. Jesus has the answer. A right understanding of him, by the way, changes everything about everything. Everything about everything. As we get to the book of Mark and we come back into the gospel here, remember the gospel as a whole has been about seeing Jesus for who he really is. Can you see me now has been the theme. Uh, Remember he healed that blind guy and he did it in two stages. It was as if it was a picture of the disciples. Remember he was blurred for a little while. He could only see a little bit. And then God healed and then Christ healed him again. They did did a... uh, a second act and healed him. And that was just a picture to say, you're seeing, but you're seeing sort of blurry. And I need to get your eyes clear and focused so you can see me in all of my glory. That's the burden of the book of Mark. It's a burden we have in this room. You've got to see Jesus for who he is to have the biggest answers to life's biggest questions. It's all about seeing him clearly. And that's what Mark's about. Remember at the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus goes up on the mountain and transfigures before them, his flesh comes off, and they see the light of this eternal glory in him. They realize he's more than a human. 
And in that moment, the voice of God comes out of the sky and says, this is my beloved son. And then these words, listen to him. So the burden of this book is not just see him, but are you hearing him? Is his voice the loudest in your head when you contemplate the issues of your life? That's the burden of Mark. That's the challenge you and I carry every day in our world. Is Jesus Christ's authoritative voice over all reality the single loudest voice in our world for every issue that we're dealing with right now? That's the burden of this passage. It's the burden of this book. Now, the reason it's significant that we're in this section of the book, which is very critical, Jesus has entered... In chapter 11 here, enters the last week of his life when he comes to Jerusalem. So Mark has Jesus coming to Jerusalem for the very first time. We saw him come in on a Monday. It's Wednesday when the event happens that we're in today, that we see today. So we're right in the middle of a really long week in Jesus' life. Takes up a third of the book of Mark. 16 chapters, a third of it dedicated to the last seven days of Jesus' life. And you better believe when he walked into Jerusalem and entered that temple and flipped the tables over, he got the attention of everyone around, especially the religious establishment. They are the ones who prided themselves in knowing truth about reality. They are the ones who wielded the power to sway the people. They were a mess, really. And Jesus is threatening that power and that authority. And they've got to get rid of him. And even though they don't all agree on everything, they all agree that we need to get rid of Jesus. And so very quickly after he gets their attention in the temple by turning over the tables, all different sects of the Sanhedrin, the 71 who run that temple, okay, made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and the chief priests, these guys, there's 71 of them. And they kind of come at him in groups to trap him because we've got to get rid of him. We've got to show that what he's teaching and who he is is wrong. And so they set up four traps. And the first trap was, what, you know, where do you get your authority? The chief priests and the scribes want to know that one. And Jesus answers that question. And then they try to trap him again with, who's your allegiance to? Is it Caesar or God? That's the old coin text. And we saw that. Today, the Sadducees come. And they question Jesus about the afterlife and the resurrection. They're going to uh, ridicule Jesus' teaching about the afterlife. And then next week, the final trap gets set. What is the greatest commandment? So that's what this is all about. They're trying to make Jesus look bad. And at the end of the day, you get the opportunity as the reader to see who Jesus really is. Can Jesus handle these questions? Can he handle these issues? Of course, up to now, he's been stellar. And you're going to see him do an amazing thing today. Now, something about the Sadducees that you need to know, because this is the group that comes to him, and this is the first time this group has stepped out to encounter Jesus in the book of Mark. Only once does it happen. They are the backbone of the Sanhedrin, the group that runs that temple. They're, connect, they're, they're elite group. Uh, part of the aristocracy. They are uh, related to the priests. So they're the backbone of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the center, really, of the power. They're in bed with Rome the most of the group. So the people despised them the most because they knew most of what they did was to keep good relations with Rome because Rome allowed them to, be, to do what they wanted as long as they could keep Rome happy. 
And by doing that, they made enemies with the Jews. They were hardline fundamentalists. They only believed in the first five books of Moses, the, law, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all they read and studied, and they knew it backwards and forwards. They were strict legalists about that law. They considered themselves those who are protecting the pure faith and religion by keeping it to the first five books of the Bible and Moses. Everything else, they didn't adhere to Pharisee, the, the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Which they had lots. They didn't go with the scribal tradition. Uh, they ignored other scriptures. They were locked in and focused, and they knew those first five books better than anybody, and they strictly adhered to them more than anybody. But one of their distinctives is that they didn't believe in the supernatural. By limiting themselves to the first five books of the Bible, they didn't buy into the supernatural. It's hard to believe. They didn't believe in angels, and they did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. You're dead, you're gone. That's, that was their position. And they always haggled with the Pharisees over this issue. And now they get a chance to confront Jesus about it. Of course, it's a, an important theological topic. Jesus has already predicted his resurrection three times, chapter 8, 9, and 10. So uh, this issue carries a lot of weight. If you can show there's no resurrection, then what Jesus is saying is baloney. So that's, what, uh, that's what's at stake when we come to our text. The Sadducees, very confident in their position, by the way, uh, come to chapter 12 and we get to this verse here, verse 18. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Mark's giving you a feel for who they are. Also come to him and ask these questions. And here's the question, or here's the statement they make. Teacher, Moses wrote for us this law. If a man's brother dies and he leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and father children for his brother. That was the Leveret Law, and it was still in force in Jesus' day for the most part among the Jews. All right? Very simple. You marry a woman, you don't have children, you die, your brother takes over. And as many brothers as you have continue to do it because too much is at stake. Okay? We got to keep our family line. And we got to keep the family inheritance and property. All right? So in order to preserve the family honor and in order to preserve the family wealth, you, you better have had kids. All right? And if you didn't, then the next guy up has to do it. So that's the essential law. Now, here's what they're doing. They're basically using it. This, this is Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6. So they're basically going to Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6, pulling out this law to prove there's no resurrection. That's what they're going to do. Now, how many of you would think about the first five books of the Bible and use this law not to prove the resurrection? Probably wouldn't. But I'll bet you don't know it as well as they do. So they present what ends up being, as a result of this law here, a very, it's a, it's a real window into how their minds work. And I'm going to show you that your mind doesn't work much different than theirs. Our minds don't work much different than theirs. But it's a real window into how well they knew the law. Uh, 
But they're going to use this text to argue there's no resurrection. See, how are they going? To, how are they doing this? Well, they create this absurd scenario, and here it is. Let's see, where is it? There were seven brothers. So imagine there's seven brothers. The first one married, and when he died, he had no children. The second married her and died without any children. And likewise, the third. Now, by the way, we're only at three. They stop at three and jump all the way to seven. This would be an absurd situation. And it would also, by the way, be a very devastating situation for a couple to not have kids. So this would be a tragic situation for them. All right? So it's filled with sort of not just absurdity, but it would be painful for, for a family in light of how much was at stake in having children. None of the seven had children. And then you get this line, and I love the way it's phrased. Finally, the woman died too. And you're almost like, thank God. She's going, she has completely devastated the family tree. And she's outlived all of them, which brings her into question. Right? I mean, you're like, wow. This is the black widow of the Bible. This is her. Uh, I think I've told you before. Uh, I mean, well, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you hate to be number four? You're like, oh, please, God. I don't want to. And then five and six and seven. He's like, please. You hate to be the next in line. Uh, as absurd as this sounds, of course, he's marrying seven brothers. So that makes it even more absurd. But my nana, my mom's mom was married seven times. And she outlasted all of them but one. We never asked, you know, how all that went down. But, uh, and then my, my sister's married to a guy whose mother was married eight times. I mean, I got a sick family. I'm just going to tell you right now, I got a sick family. All right, as sick as you think yours is. All right, so here's this strange thing. And by the way, it's an absurd scenario, but at the end of the day, it's still a good question because you, can, if you have an ex, you might see him in heaven. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? What's going to go on? All right, so it's a good question. So here's what, you, here's what they want to know. They want to know, whose wife is she going to be? You say, what, what's the point of that question and what's its relationship to the resurrection? Well, and again, not that any of them are rushing to be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you get to heaven, you go, which seven of you want her? None of us. <laughs> so they think that a little wit, because it's funny, and a little common sense will show there's no resurrection here. Because here's their thought. You can't have polygamy in heaven. According to the first five books, of course you can't. Uh, you can't be married to seven men at the same time. So, because monogamy is unsustainable in the afterlife, there can be no resurrection. So, because of this law, right here, because of this law, this law makes the resurrection impossible because it shatters the law. You shatter this law means you can't have a resurrection in the future. Now, of course, that's the scenario we're in. They think, and they're very confident, 
that they've got Jesus now. And, of course, his response is absolutely brilliant. And this is what he does. So Jesus says to them, and it's really in the form of a question. And you should know that this word here, deceived, is, the, is in the last phrase too. And it's a word that means planet that's gone astray. Jesus says to them, aren't you deceived? Aren't you like a planet that has sort of lost its place in the galaxy and is way off track? Okay? Like a, in an, an unsurvivable situation. And here's the reason why, and it's a question, and down here it's a statement, so we'll see that in a minute. But Jesus is saying, aren't you? And the question, of course, the construction is, yes, you are deceived. And here's what Jesus says, here's the reason. So he doesn't just uh, reprove them, he's going to diagnose their problem too. For this reason, because you don't know the scriptures, and because you don't know the power of God. Now, Let me just tell you how this would sound as soon as Jesus says it. This would be like any of us saying right now, NASA, you know nothing about space. They prided themselves on knowing the scriptures. They knew power. They were the elite power of the temple. They were in bed with Rome. They knew how to wield power and how to keep power and loved using power. They understood power. And they thought they knew the scriptures. So this is, this is a very powerful statement they are hearing. Now, here's something that I just want to say as we go through this. Something that they do that Jesus alludes to here and then is going to tease out. They just flat underestimate God. And the truth of the matter is, I'll bet you do that too. I do that too. So that's one of their problems. They underestimate God. The second thing they do, and this is sort of strange to hear, so I'm going to put it in perspective for you, is they overestimate Scripture. They say, hey, wait a minute, how can you overestimate Scripture? Let me tell you, let me tell you what that looks like. And nothing better than John chapter five to do it. Listen to this conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees. Jesus says, I have a testimony. In other words, what you hear me saying, that's greater than that from John. Remember, the Jews worshiped John the Baptist, whatever he said. And he says, for the deeds that the Father has assigned me to complete, the deeds I am now doing, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So he's establishing his relationship with the Father. And the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You people have never heard his voice nor seen his form at any time. Let me just tell you, I have a really tight relationship with God. You've never seen him, and I'm going to argue have never heard him either. Even though you know the scriptures backwards and forwards. Now listen to what he says. He goes on to say, nor do you have his word residing in you. Now, that's powerful. That's essentially this. How can you say that? They know it backwards and forwards. 
nor do you have his word residing in you because you do not believe in the one whom he sent. You study the scriptures thoroughly because you think that in them you possess eternal life. You think by knowing a lot, you're better off. And Jesus is about to turn that on them and say this. You search the scriptures because you think in them you possess eternal life, and it is these same scriptures that testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. These scriptures point to Jesus. If you don't come to Jesus, they will do you no good. Does everybody hear that? You can know all you want to know. You can know this book inside and out. If it does not lead you to the person that Mark is describing and pointing to as the authoritative one over reality, you're lost. And that's the Sadducees. That's how you overestimate Scripture. If it doesn't point you to Jesus, and Jesus becomes the basis of what you know. So that will sort of tease out here in just a second, and you'll see what that might look like in your life here in just a minute. But Jesus is not done. That's his question, and now he's going to tease that out. And here's what he does. And by the way, He's going to start with this one first, even though it's the last one, and then he's going to come back to this one. So he's going to do the power of God first and then the scriptures. And here's what he's going to say. For when they rise, and it's hard to see in this construction, but this is a present tense. And that present tense we would call a futuristic present. So you've got Jesus who already lives in a future reality they can't even grasp. And that's what the present tense is doing. So Jesus speaks of the future reality as if it's already normal to him. And, and, and so certain of a reality that I can speak of it is already happening now. That's what all the present... I won't point all of them out to you in this text because it would get very tedious. I just want you to see how it is. You can see it. They neither marry, for when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage. So Jesus speaks of resurrection in that present tense as something very common in God's world. He raises the dead. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. That speaks directly to the Deuteronomy 25 passage that they bring up. But are like angels in heaven. But they're like angels in heaven. Luke actually has a word. uh, It's one word. It's just angel-like. We are angel-like. So, of course, you've got to tease this out because that has implications in many ways. And then I think it has an even deeper spiritual meaning, which we're about to see. So, the first thing that happens is you see in this, the way Jesus uses this language here, and he does it three times in this text. It's this idea that God definitely raises the dead. He speaks of it as a present tense. So you've got transformation is a reality. When we speak about resurrection, we think it's bodily existence. There was some sort of bodily... There wouldn't need to be resurrection if only your soul went to heaven forever. When you die now, your soul goes until the resurrection happens. Which, by the way, the rapture is a resurrection. Okay, that's what happens in the rapture. There's a resurrection involved. Well, there's lots of resurrections. And they happen at different times and everybody is eventually resurrected at some point. It just simply means that there is some sort of bodily existence after this one. Okay? So, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the first thing Jesus does is says the conditions of heaven are not the same as here. One of the assumptions of the Sadducees is that 
Life continues in the afterlife just like it is here. That's why they're using that law. Well, that law won't apply there. So, therefore, you can't have a resurrection. Jesus is about to say, well, uh, time out. I've arranged for that. There is no marriage in heaven. (laughs) Well, put that in your pipe and smoke. There is no marriage in heaven. That law is not going to apply at all. Because we're like the angels. By the way, not only are the conditions of heaven different than here. So are you. So are you. You're not the same either. Now that gets underneath the problem of this verse. So. In the ancient world. Marriage was a business deal, right? That's what the whole Everett Law is all about. It's a business deal. I don't care who loved her the most of the seven brothers. It was a business deal. Keep the, keep the family line and keep the property in the family. And in much of the world, that marriages are arranged and they're business deals. But you come over to the West, when we read this verse, we feel something completely different. So if you're in the West and you're more involved in, and there's dating and there's romance and there's online services, find the love of your life. You're like, you mean to tell me I'm going to invest a love and energy and passion into one person, develop this intimate thing, and then it's gone at the end? So if you're happily married, this verse troubles you. If you're not, you're thrilled. (laughs) And you're trying hard not to show it right now. I know. So what's going on? Because you know what's at the root of this? Here's what's at the root of this. And by the way, this is a great place to see it because it doesn't sound anything like Genesis 3. But I'll tell you what's at the root of all of our issues on a daily basis is we're very suspicious that God doesn't want us to have something we like. Aren't you? Aren't you suspicious that God will withhold something from you? Isn't that what happened in Genesis 3? God, you mean to tell me I can't have that tree? I can have all these trees, but I can't have that one? Well, if I can't have that one, you must be the kind of God who likes to withhold good things. So at the root of this is the doubt that somehow you're going to get to heaven and go, no sex. And I would venture to say most of you are not so much worried about the marriage thing. The sex thing's driving you crazy. Wait a minute. Well, you're going to feel just like the Sadducees. When you think about heaven, you think there's going to be some shortcomings. I'm going to be disappointed. And see, that's what's at the root of this. Now, listen to what's happening here, because the Sadducees are really short on imagination. They can't imagine that God is capable of creating a reality where our transformed selves don't desire sex, but still enjoy life. They can't fathom it. So what they're really doing is reducing God to someone who can't be trusted and isn't powerful enough 
to arrange for an eternal reality. We're talking about the eternally creative God. They're refusing to give him credit for being able to arrange reality in such a way. Remember, this is a completely different structural dynamic and reality in in eternity. And let me say this to you. You will not desire anything in heaven that cannot righteously be fulfilled. See, because it's not only that the conditions are there, there's no marriage and you say, oh, there's no sex. You also won't want it. That's what Jesus is saying. I've created a reality where you won't want it, and everything you do want, you'll be able to have. Does that make sense? Now, you just nah, smoke that in your pipe, too. Imagine being in a reality where evil doesn't exist in such a way that you can be trusted with your desires and motives. Because that's how gone evil is. And you think about that. I can trust you with that, God says. In other words, if you, could, if you could desire it and not have it, then it wouldn't be heaven. It would be a strange place. Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's not the case at all. Remember this. Marriage is a picture of something greater. It's not the end itself. So whatever wonders you find in marriage, and there are wonders in it, It's still only a picture of the reality. And God is big enough to create a reality that this can only picture. If I showed you a picture of a beautiful place and said, would you like to go there? Of course I'd like to go. I don't want to just stare at the picture. I'd like to be there. That's what heaven will be. And that's what he's arguing here. If you like that, wait till I give you desires you can't even fathom having and a way to fulfill them all. If you like that, you're going to love this. You ever say that to your kids? If you like that, wait. Get to Disney World and you come in and you see his Mickey Mouse. Ah, you ain't seen nothing yet, kid. Let's get in here. Dumbo's right around the corner. Yeah, Dumbo's right around the corner. So, God is saying, I, I took care of that. In fact, in our house, uh, we quote Dumb and Dumber a lot in our house. And uh, one of our famous lines is, you know, I'll say to the boys, I'll say, hey, did you turn the pool water off? Because if you don't turn the pool, pool water off, you're going to flood the yard. So I'll say, did you turn the pool water off? And, and in our family, the way that code of how that all gets handled is we say, uh, Harry, I took care of it. <laughs> you remember that line in Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> it's greatness. No mean to compare God to Lloyd. That's not what I'm trying to do, but I will say, God's looking at you and going, well, what do you mean we're not going to have sex in heaven? He's going to go, Harry, we took care of it. I've arranged for that. Don't worry. That's what he's saying. And by the way, you should know this about God. The one who created you with your desires relationally and for intimacy and the one who created you with relationships, he was a Trinitarian society. All of reality is built on relationship. The God who created us is relational. He was a Trinitarian society before there was anything else. And what God decided to do was open up that Trinity and let you in. Let me in. He decided to share 
that harmony and intimacy and relationship and love at the levels we couldn't even comprehend. He invited us in it. That's what we learn at the beginning of the Bible. And at the end of the Bible, we realize there's just a godly society at the end with God present right in the center. What he has always wanted, so much so, that when Israel was in the desert at their worst, he had a tent that he got in because he wanted to be with them. You're talking about the God of relationships, the God who made them, the God who made you the way you are to want them. Are you saying you can't trust him to arrange eternity in such a way to make sure that that is not the center of reality? Because that's what the Sadducees are doing. It's ridiculous. So, God has arranged for the conditions of heaven to accommodate this law. (laughs) The law is no good there. But there's more. Jesus isn't finished. It's far more than that. There's there's actually more to it than that. You say, really? What, What else could there be? There's actually more reason for you to be confident that we will continue beyond the demise of our bodies. But there really is rationale for human beings existing in a glorious future. There's rationale. I want to show you what it is. Here's what Jesus says. Now, as for the dead, here's the second, the scriptures. One. Just dealt with the power of God being able to do it. Now look at the scriptures one. Now, as for the dead being raised, again, present tense. And this is emphatic, so it's really... Uh, God raising the dead. Now, as for God raising the dead, I mean, again, Jesus is just speaking as if this is, this is no big deal, people. Raising the dead is no big deal. And now you're going to see why it's no big deal. Have you not read? There's Jesus being a little tart. He's being a little tart. Haven't you read? Because you know they've read. In the book of Moses... It could have been any of the five books until he says in the passage about the bush, which has to be what book? It has to be Exodus, which is the book about Moses too. So this is about as Moses as you can get. Okay? Mo knows. (laughs) In the passage about the bush, that's the burning bush. God had said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now Jesus is going to go into the Pentateuch and find a verse and go, this proves the resurrection. You go, holy moly, I wouldn't have thought of this verse to prove the resurrection. And Jesus matches them. Now here's the beauty of this book. And it just reinforces what I just told you. Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush is God revealing himself to Moses in a way he had never done to anyone. This is what we call the self-revelation of God. This is God saying, look at who I am. I want you to see me, Moses. As much as I can show you, I'm going to show you. Because this is God's heart. I want to reveal myself to you. That's what love, that's what intimacy, that's what relationships all about. It's really getting to know a person at the deepest level. And God is trying to get to know Moses and human beings and revealing that he is a self-revealing God. So that's the basis of this text. 
And then you hear him say to Moses, let me say something to you, Moses. The God you're speaking to, the great I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long gone. They're long gone. There's a gravestone where they're at. So what is God saying in using this text right here? Here's what he's saying, and it's just simply profound. If I'm still their God, then they cannot have ceased to exist. If I'm still their God, they cannot have ceased to exist. I made a covenant and a promise with them that I intend to keep. And they have to be around for God to be faithful to that promise. They cannot be dead. Once God establishes a relationship with you, he makes, he makes it a reality and it cannot and will not be ended by death itself. So notice what's happening here where the burden shifts. The burden shifts is that God is forced by his relationship to human beings to figure out a way to conquer death or death puts an end to God's intention to love and be with humans and to reveal himself. Do you see what happens? Death is a problem that God has to solve in order to love us, in order to show us his love, in order to, in order to show us. So death is a problem he's got to solve. And for Jesus, it's solvable and already done. That's what Jesus is arguing here. I'm the kind of God that's so personal, everlasting, faithful, and it requires me to solve this problem. And you need to know something about me, he says. And here it is. I am not the God of the dead. The last thing I wanted to do was open up the Trinity, let you see a little of who we were, then redeem you, and then you die. And now I spend the rest of eternity by myself in the same condition I was back then. I'm a God of the living. And if you don't think I am, you are badly mistaken, Jesus says. Not only, this is the same word, by the way, as deceived up there at the top. You're a planet that is loose in reality. And you have no foundation for reality if you don't buy this. So what Jesus is saying is, oh, no, 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 no. Death isn't stopping this plan. I've solved that problem. And for the rest of eternity, you will know what it means to know me. And it will take all of eternity to know me. That's what eternal life is about. In other words... All of your desires can be all shaped and focused and funneled down to one big one. And that is to love God and to know him in a way. Every other desire you have emanates from this desire. Any other healthy, good desire you have that God made with humans centers around that central one. And that's what heaven will be about. Not a bunch of peripheral ones. The single one that everything else emanates from. And that's about knowing him. And you got to be alive to do it. you got to be in relationship with him to do it. And Jesus is the only one who can make that happen for you, see. 
That's what he's arguing. Now, my favorite writer says this about this verse, and I love it. He's, what he's, his meaning was that those who love and are loved by God are not allowed to cease to exist. That's what he's saying. You're not allowed to cease to exist. You are his treasures. He delights in you. He intends to hold on to you. He has even prepared an individualized eternal work in his vast universe. God has arranged to be in relationship with you forever. And whatever you get out of anything you think you love here, whatever fulfills you here, is only a shadow of the fulfilling reality you're going to have in eternity. John Hick, who wrote The Center of Christianity, writes this. If we trust what Jesus said, out of his own direct consciousness of God, we shall share his belief in the future life. This belief is supported by the reasoning. This is great. Don't miss this. That a God of infinite love would not create finite persons and then drop them out of existence when the potentialities of their nature, including the awareness of himself, have only just begun to be realized. God would never let death end what he sees happening forever and getting to know him. He would never let that happen. That's why you can count on a glorious human future. It's not because of who you are. It's because of who God is. Eternity is not just for your benefit. We think of eternity as for our benefit. Here's God saying, eternity is for my benefit. I want to reveal to you who I am so I will keep you alive long enough. And how long do you got to be alive to know me intimately? Forever. That's why you got to be alive. It's not just for you. It's for God's benefit. And by the way, by the way, he has made a great and terrifying investment in human beings. He has actually taken on flesh and come here, died on a cross, surrendered himself to death, a brutal one, because he loves so much. Do you think that God is going to let you cease to exist? Go into nothingness? Oh, no. He's resurrecting your behind because he wants you to be in relationship with him forever. That's the God you're dealing with. Sadducees are way off base about God. Now, the irony of it all is that Jesus has entered Jerusalem and in two days on Friday, he will die on a cross and he will rise from the dead to prove the resurrection. And to, and, to, and to satisfy God's demands for what it takes to enter a relationship with human beings. What Jesus does on a cross is validated by the resurrection and opens up eternity. That means the plan God had from the beginning can happen because Jesus comes out of that grave and eternity is set up to make sure we can have it. That's what he's saying. That means all the promises and all the prophecies in the first five books of the Bible and in the rest of the Old Testament are all undergirded. All the covenants, all the promises, all undergirded by a God who's loving and relational and will never let you out of it. Hey, sorry, you don't get to cease to exist. You just don't get to. And the irony is he's going to die on a cross. He's going to reveal the extent to which God will go to make that happen and make it happen forever.
Now, I'm going to close with this thought for you. Because Luke adds one line. Matthew records this story with a little twist, very close to Mark. But Luke adds a few little lines. You can't go through all of them, but one of them is important at this point, And it's this. But those who are regarded as worthy to share in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So it's the same topic. It's the same theme. But only Luke adds this. Some people are worthy to share in that age. Meaning some are not. Everyone will be resurrected. Not everyone will be resurrected to life. Everyone has an eternal future. Not everyone has one with God. And I've told you, if you don't want to be with him now, you won't want to be with him then. And God will give you exactly what you want. If you don't want him now, you won't want him then. You won't, be, you won't die and then all of a sudden love God. To be worthy to share in that age is very simple because Luke describes it elsewhere. It's be connected to Jesus Christ. I had a New Testament professor who has a commentary on Luke. It's probably my favorite. And he used to say, he, used, he wrote actually, death is the great equalizer. Resurrection is the great opportunity. So we all have to face death. But only some of us will face resurrection to life. And it's based on Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through what? Me. He is your way. If you're banking on anything other than him to get there, what did he say? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, though he dies, yet shall he live. In other words, death is not the end. It is not even close to the end of my plans for human beings. That's how valuable you are. He will not let you cease to exist. And if you want to be in eternity with him, then you've got to love his son and you've got to know his son. Because what did we read in John 5 earlier? The scriptures, you can know them inside and out. If you don't know the son who is the life, then you do not know God. Would you bow your heads? Father, we come before you and we're just overwhelmed by this incredible text. We see clearly how often we doubt your goodness. How we so underestimate your power in all things, let alone eternal ones. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive us today for being like the Sadducees. Just so smart. Think we know what we need to know. And Father, I just pray again that we would hear your voice. And I pray especially for those in here who don't know you yet. They may know a lot, but they don't know your son, Jesus Christ, personally. And I ask, Father, that you open their eyes and ears to see Jesus for who he is, the reality of who he is. Because without it, cannot know you. We cannot live eternally in the wonder of relationship with you without him and what he has done for us on the cross. 
While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I can't help but just say, if there's one of you out here who's, you know, you understand things, but you've never really got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never put all your weight of trust on him for everything. Maybe today's the day you do it. You rely on him for salvation because of what he does on the cross and forgiving your sin. You trust him as the one who's resurrected to open up a way to God. The only way to God is through him. Because he is the one who has defeated death. And if you want to make a decision today to follow Jesus Christ, I pray that you'll do that. Ask him in your heart right now. Say, God, I trust you. I trust you and your son alone for what he has done. And I pray you'll help me know what it means to relate to you from this day forward into eternity. And if you've done that, I pray you'll let somebody know before you leave. Communicate that with us because we'd love to help you understand what it means to relate to God. Father, thank you again for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stand to your feet. So just a reminder at the beginning of the talk, I said the loudest voice in your head, whose who's is it? Who is the loudest voice in your head? And I know we all hear voices. And some of us are nuts. <laughs> and it isn't easy to detect the voice. But Jesus Christ has to be the loudest voice in your life for all realities. Amen? Amen. Amen. You have a great week. If you're a guest, I'll be out at the guest info booth. Love to meet you.